Welcome to another episode of Dakota Spotlight. I really appreciate you listening and would like you to know about Spotlight Plus. It is a subscription to Dakota Spotlight that provides bonus content, early access, and ad-free listening, all while supporting my work and the show you love. You can subscribe right in the Apple Podcasts app or visit dakotaspotlight.com. The year 2015, the date September 30th, my favorite time of year, autumn. I'm sitting in the back of a tiny cafe or diner named White Maid in Napoleon, North Dakota, the county seat of Logan County. I'm stirring my now lukewarm coffee and checking my watch repeatedly. This town, Napoleon, has a population of about 800 people. As the crow flies, I'm 20 miles, 30 kilometers from Wishick, where Bob and Kristen were last seen alive. Each time a new customer walks into the cafe, I'm reminded that I'm a living, breathing homo sapien on Earth. My brain and body won't let me forget. I have no say in the matter after thousands of years of evolution. My spine reacts first. I feel myself sitting up in my chair, leaning forward. My pupils instantly and expertly dial in on their faces in search of recognition. Is that them, I think? But no, it's not them. It's never them, it seems. Um, I'll have the teen burger uh, to go. Occasionally, I stand up, walk to the front door, and glance out the window. My eyes adjust again as I scan the sidewalk and look up the street. Nothing. Nobody. I look at that square brick building on the corner of Broadway and B Avenue East, just a stone's throw away, the Logan County Sheriff's Office. I guess they're still in there, I think. Then I look at my watch again. I ponder if it's a good sign or a bad sign that things are taking longer than expected. Somewhere inside that brick building are five members of the Anderson family, Bob's son, Chase Anderson, Bob's siblings, Debbie, Dean, and Diane, and Diane's husband, Mike. They're all meeting with law enforcement to discuss Bob's disappearance 23 years after he vanished alongside Kristen Deedy. I've arranged to get together with the family after their meeting. This will be the second time I've met them all. I traveled to them in Minneapolis a few weeks earlier for an initial meeting. This time, they all made the six-hour drive out to Napoleon, North Dakota, Not to see me primarily, really, but to meet with investigators working on Bob's case, both current and retired law enforcement officers. Why not meet just down the road in Wishick, in Kristen's hometown in McIntosh County? Why here in neighboring Logan County? Well, it's because this case belongs to the sheriff of Logan County, here in Napoleon. I've never been explicitly told why Logan County owns the case and not McIntosh County, but I do know this. The county line runs just north of Wishick. The Didi Farm and the old Gable Farm actually lie here in Logan County. I return to my table and sit down where the loop repeats itself. Stir coffee, tap pen on notebook, look at my watch, look out the window, repeat.
We're all doing a type of dance. Me, the Andersons, law enforcement. That's the way it feels to me, anyway. A complicated dance in which we all have the same goal in mind. To find out what happened to Bob and Kristen. To see justice served. But we also have our own different roles and different jobs. This is an open and ongoing case. Law enforcement believe that Kristen and Bob were murdered. But their bodies have never been located. And, as is common in open and ongoing investigations, while the police are not prohibited to share information with the public, they often don't share much. There are many reasons for doing this, but in general, the more recent the crime, the more tight-lipped law enforcement are. As time goes on, when a case becomes colder and colder, they sometimes become more willing to share with the public. Not so in this case. Not with the public, anyway. But the families of the victims, that's another matter. They share more with them. Not everything, perhaps, but more. So, as I sit there in the white maid diner, waiting to meet Bob's loved ones again, I'm on the edge of my seat. On the one hand, I'm just anticipating what new information they might learn in there. In other words, I'm thinking, what will law enforcement tell them? On the other hand, I'm thinking, what will the Andersons be able to share with me? because I fully anticipate that law enforcement might ask the Andersons not to speak with the media, even though at the time I'm just a blogger, hardly consider myself media, but still. And I fully anticipate and respect that the Andersons might feel they need to abide by that. I mean, who knows, maybe there's something law enforcement has, some piece of evidence that, as they say in the books and movies, only the killer knows about. I doubt law enforcement would even share that with the family, but if they do, I don't expect them to share it with me. And this is what I mean by a complicated dance. We're dancing, everyone with the same end goal, but choreographed differently. Different shoes on a common dance floor. We're all trying to make it work without stepping on toes and getting in each other's way. Perhaps I'll call this dance the who can tell who, what, and when, and how much so that we can resolve this crime dance. So, I don't expect to learn everything the Andersons are told on this day, But there's one detail, one piece of information I'm sort of desperately hoping the Andersons will get confirmed or dismissed. Either would be helpful. It's a detail that Chase Anderson, Bob's son, told me about. He said he was told this when he first met with investigators at the age of 16, an incredibly important detail related to the time and place Bob's van was found 100 miles from Wishick. But was it accurate, this detail? Could it really be true? Because memory is a tricky thing, after all, in any circumstance. But imagine being Chase Anderson at age 16, just a kid. You've grown up without a father, mostly without a family at all. You've lived your life thinking your dad just ran off, and then very suddenly, everything changes. Your own story is kind of upside down, and you're sitting with two grown men, BCI agents, with badges, and they show you some three-ring binders and walk you through almost everything they know about your father's alleged murder. If you are Chase Anderson at that moment, how much of that information is going to be recorded 100% accurately in your memory? Because that would be a challenge for all of us, regardless of age, regardless of the circumstances. Memory is just a tricky thing.
Finally, with my coffee dead cold, Bob Anderson's loved ones walk into the diner. I study their faces, their expressions, looking for clues to how it all went inside the Logan County Sheriff's Office. They look tired, a little overwhelmed, and they look hungry, famished, in fact. They join me at the table and start settling in, jackets off, grab a menu. Sure enough, someone says, I'm starving. I know better than to pepper them with questions right away. Let them breathe. Let them recover. But thankfully, Bob Anderson's brother-in-law, Mike, doesn't make me sit through a whole meal just wondering. In fact, before they have even finished ordering their lunch, Mike looks at me and he nods. Then he leans in a little closer and perhaps much like an elegant dance step, he simply tells me. He shares with me what I've been waiting to find out. I can't be entirely sure, but my jaw may have dropped right into my cold cup of coffee. You're listening to Dakota Spotlight. My name is James Walner, and this is Vanishing Act, the untold story of Kristen Beattie and Bob Anderson. And I'm Jeremy Fugelberg, co-producer for this season. This is episode six, Follow the Van. Hello, dear listener. This is James, host of Dakota Spotlight, inviting you to subscribe to Spotlight Plus. For as little as $5 per month, you will get the warm feeling of supporting the show and also unlock access to bonus episodes. Get the episodes early and listen ad-free. That's right, no more ads. Apple users can subscribe to Spotlight Plus Standard right in the Apple Podcasts app. If you want to dive deeper and get even more exclusive benefits, subscribe to Spotlight Plus Premium or Spotlight Plus Ultimate. Go to dakotaspotlight.com for more details. In previous episodes, we've unveiled a lot of new things about the Dee Dee Anderson case. In this episode, we'll be revealing something we learned via family members from law enforcement, never previously told to the public about this case. Something that, well, it could make it easy to jump to a lot of conclusions. So we thought now was an important time to repeat what we said from the beginning of this podcast. I want to repeat it here for extra emphasis. This is an ongoing law enforcement investigation. Nobody has been arrested and charged regarding Kristen and Bob's disappearance. Everyone should be presumed innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. In this episode, we're zooming between two different years. 2015, sitting in that diner with James, and 1993, just after Kristen and Bob disappeared. In fact, we'll be spending time in just a few days, what happened that first week after they vanished in 1993, and what was revealed in just that one day in Napoleon in 2015. Those two time periods are linked. They are connected. How? Well, that's what this episode is all about. Here's a big clue, though. Remember in episode one, we told you about Bob's van, the one he and Kristen drove to North Dakota, how it was eventually found, and how there wasn't much more detail about that. Yeah, in this episode, we're going to talk more about that van. 
will return to sit alongside James in the White Maid Diner in 2015. In a minute. But now we're zooming back. Back to 1993. Kristen and Bob have just vanished. Here's James. It's Monday, August 16th, 1993, the day after Bob and Kristen stopped in to see State Trooper Wes Meidinger, just before allegedly heading to the Didi farm, where Kristen called Tiffany back in Bloomington. But as we all know, they didn't return late that night, they didn't return on Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday, not ever. And when that happened, or perhaps I should say, didn't happen, when they failed to return to Bloomington, some people were immediately concerned, while others were not. Those who knew Bob as the happy-go-lucky fisherman, they were not too worried. Here's Bob's brother, Dean. He didn't come back, and I didn't think too much of it, because he was kind of uh, the type of guy who uh, would just uh, change plans quickly. And um, at first thought, I thought, well, maybe he, he just took off. Just wanted to get away for a while, or maybe went fishing. But those who knew Kristen, Kristen Didi, the mother, they had a completely different reaction. Remember, Kristen's friends, Tiffany and Heather, and her advocates at Cornerstone, they were all concerned, worried about Kristen going to North Dakota in the first place. So much so that they felt better just knowing Bob was going to go with her. Here's Tiffany again, talking about the sinking feeling she had in her stomach on that first Monday. I knew... That Monday, there is no possibility. There's no second thoughts. There's no nothing. I knew straight away that we wouldn't see her again. I knew that something bad had really happened up there. Now, there's some confusion on exactly when and where Bob and Kristen were reported missing. There were a lot of moving parts, after all. They vanished from North Dakota, but lived in Minnesota. Kristen had roots in Wishick, but lived at the apartment in Bloomington. And Bob's permanent address seems a little fuzzy, too. It may have been in St. Paul somewhere, or maybe White Bear Lake, Minnesota. If you're Tiffany or Heather or Bob's family, which police department do you even turn to? Who do you call? The North Dakota Attorney General's website, which lists the cold case, states that they were reported missing the following week, on August 26th. But because more than one person reported them, it's possible it occurred sooner. One of those persons was Tiffany. It was Wednesday. I called the police. Okay. That would have been Wednesday, August 18th, not a week later. Mike Kangas is Bob Anderson's brother-in-law. He's married to Bob's sister, Diane. Over the years, since first meeting them, I've occasionally half-joked with Mike, and I said, Mike, if anyone's going to solve this case, it is you. I say that because he has a lot of information in his head about this case, and he's kept a lot of notes and records about it, too. Documents separated in categories such as known facts, different versions, questions. Mike always points out to me and corrects me and says his wife, Diane, Bob's sister, deserves a lot of the credit for this work, too. When Bob went missing, Mike and Diane were in the middle of raising their own family. Now retired, and now that Bob's parents have passed away, they've taken on a prominent role in seeking answers and justice. If I had gone missing... I'd hope my family and friends would take on the same approach, persistently working to keep the flame alive. Here are Mike and Diane speaking with me and Jeremy on the phone in February of 2022 
as we attempt to untangle where Bob lived, who reported him missing, and when. I've got it listed as Dean reported him missing on August 26, 93. That would be the next week on Friday, 12 days after Kristen and Bob disappeared. But regardless of exactly when, just like Kristen's friends, Bob's parents became quickly concerned about their son, fishing or no fishing. Here's Bob's brother, Dean, again. My dad called me and he says, well, he hasn't come back and I'm worried about him and uh, I, uh, I'm really concerned. At which point, one of the Andersons, possibly Bob's father, called Kristen's apartment in Bloomington, where Tiffany was now house-sitting. I think, I almost remember, think that his parents called Dee Dee, uh, Kristen's house and I answered the phone and they're like, is Bob there or Robert there? And I'm like, no, who is this? And they're like, I don't remember which one of the family members it was. I'm like, oh, well, I'm Tiffany and I'm staying at Kristen's house. And they went up there and they're not back yet. And I'm a little worried. And we had a brief conversation. It seems to me they told me this was, I think, on a Wednesday. I think you need to report her missing. Yeah. And and I'm like, I think so, too. I just didn't. I was waiting for somebody to tell me I should. And so I got off the phone and then I picked up the phone and called the police. And I hadn't even told Heather I was calling. I was like, once they said, no, you need to report her missing. I was like, that's all it took. I was just like, okay. Because like I said, I didn't know her for like 10 years or five years or two years even. You know, I knew her for months. So I kind of felt like I didn't have the right. Like maybe there's something I don't know, you know, like about her or something. But when the parents were concerned, the family was concerned, I was like, okay, that's, that's it. I'm just going to call because I know something's weird. I know something's up. Is it any wonder when you ask about bands, you hear about Dodge? Dodge is into trucking, like America's into G. On Thursday or Friday, four to five days after the disappearance, while friends and family in Bloomington continued to hold out hope that Bob and Kristen would show up at any time, 100 miles to the southeast of Wishick in the small city of Aberdeen, South Dakota, a manager at the Burlington Northern Railroad Yard picked up the phone and called the police. There was a darn Dodge van just sitting in stall number 10, he told them. It seemed to be abandoned. There weren't even any license plates on the thing. Someone from the city came and towed the vehicle away. Aberdeen, South Dakota sits in the northeast quadrant of the state. The city calls itself the Hub City, and for good reason. In 1993, about 25,000 people lived in the city itself, but due to its location, it's a main shopping and entertainment destination serving dozens of smaller communities in every direction. If you live in that rural area, your other major shopping options are quite a bit further away. Jamestown or Fargo, North Dakota, Watertown or maybe Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Or if you want to make a weekend out of it, maybe you head to Mall of America in Minneapolis, Minnesota. All of those places are too far away for just loading up on groceries, going to the dentist or picking up some lumber. Aberdeen is where you drive to do that, even if it's an hour away. The old rail station and its parking lot where Bob's van was found is located in what is generally referred to as the old downtown area. You know, that part of town that can be found in many small to mid-sized cities in the United States where you'll find a main street, an older movie theater, 
maybe a bank building on a corner. An old train depot still stands there, but in 1993, there was no longer any passenger service to Aberdeen. The depot had been converted into office space. I worked at um, a mailing service. It was actually, it was in the depot. This is Erin Mayer. She's a colleague of ours at Forum Communications. She lives in Fargo today, but in 1993, she lived in Aberdeen, and she worked at several downtown businesses. That train depot, the rail yard, and its parking lot rests on the northern edge of Aberdeen's downtown, just a stone's throw away from Main Street's weekend nightlife. Erin knew the area well. She worked at various restaurants and at a hotel, the Ward. A lot of different places. I worked at, um, I was a waitress at the Flame, and then I worked at the Ward for a little while. On weekends, there was a lot of activity in the downtown area of Aberdeen. It was not a quiet street. It was, it was uh, lit up. Um, there's Capitol Theater. It was super busy. Like I remember the street constantly busy. There was a lot of traffic. So you know what I mean? It wasn't like a dead main street. It was super alive. That is, on weekends, it was alive when teenagers cruised Main Street. We used to call it cruising the loop. So the loop was Main, main Street, and you just drive and drive and drive through Main Street. Right. And you cruise the loop. Um, yeah, it wasn't like the mall had taken over yet. It was still really busy. It was it was fun and you kind of wanted to be there, you know. One of the places Aaron worked at back then was, as she mentioned, the Flame Restaurant. It was a loungy bar and steakhouse that sits at that north end of downtown, just across the street from the train depot and parking lot where Bob's van was discovered. Yeah, so the Flame um was on the corner of Railroad Avenue and Main Street, South Main Street and Railroad Avenue, right on the corner. It was right before you almost get into a different area of town. So it was right at the very north end of Main Street. The Flame Restaurant is still in operation, and to this day, the eastern end of the parking lot across the street provides parking space for diners and employees. Bob's van was found in stall number 10, apparently, but unfortunately, Jeremy and I don't know exactly what that means, where stall number 10 was. I'm sure law enforcement knows, but we simply don't have access to that information. If you visit Aberdeen or look at an aerial photo of that depot and the rail yard buildings next to it, it's clear that the parking lot is actually huge, taking up parts of three blocks from South 3rd Street on the west to South Main Street on the east. We just don't know if Bob's van was parked near the depot building near the Flame Restaurant, or maybe way down on the western edge of the rail yard. We don't know. Interestingly, though, to this day, there are exactly 10 parking stalls just outside the depot on the northeast corner of the lot, within sight of the Flame Restaurant. And the parking lot was, you know, it was, it was like, that's where employees parked. That's where we parked our cars. It was never packed unless it was like, hunting season or you know a friday or saturday night because like most nights it wasn't it wasn't a full house um but friday saturday nights that parking lot could be pretty busy it would have been weird to see a car in that parking lot um overnight you know what i mean or left for a day or two so it sounds like a vehicle would have really stuck out if it was left overnight during the much slower part of the week, on a Tuesday, Wednesday, or Thursday. And 
it appears that that is exactly what happened. According to the Attorney General's cold case page, Bob's van was discovered abandoned in the parking lot on Friday, August 20th, five days after they vanished. But it's unlikely that a car would be reported as abandoned on the first day. It's much more likely it'd been there for a few days. Now, while Jeremy and I don't have access to the police files, Bob Anderson's family have been told many things directly by law enforcement. Here is Mike again, Bob's brother-in-law, talking about what he had learned about the timing of the van. I think there was some suspicion that that van had been there more than one day. That's what they mm. said. That's why it was reported? Yeah. Yeah. When, when the manager reported it, he probably it would be unlikely that he reported if it was just there one day. Apparently, when the manager reported the van, there were no license plates on it. And once the van was impounded, it was discovered that the VIN number, or vehicle identification number, had been scratched off. The VIN number is a unique code used by the automotive industry and law enforcement to identify individual motor vehicles. Here's Jeremy as he asks Mike to walk us through some of his notes. Down, down, down. Okay, so all the other stuff on Thursday there with the van. The van in lot 10, impounded, stuff inside was tools, and the van was missing plate and the VIN was scratched off. Was that, again, from um, that conversation in 2015 with law enforcement? Yes. And here's Chase Anderson again, speaking with me in September of 2021, recalling what he had learned over the years. Uh, So my dad had an old Dodge van, Dodge, like, sleeper van. Um, It was found at a railroad in Aberdeen, South Dakota. When? Um, I want to say three days. It was real, real soon right after that. And they, uh, it was stripped down, the VIN numbers were taken out, everything was emptied out of the thing. That scratched-off VIN number caused some real problems. Because the vehicle could not be identified, apparently it became a utility vehicle for the city of Aberdeen for some time. Diane, Bob's sister, told us she remembers being very disappointed when she learned that from law enforcement. Chase recalls this, too. So Aberdeen, they used that van as a service vehicle for a couple years. Um, You know, they didn't know anything had... They didn't know whose it was and what connection it was, but I, I remember hearing that they used that as a service vehicle. Now, it might seem odd to us that what we know is important evidence would get turned into a city service vehicle, but it's quite possible Aberdeen police didn't know the van was evidence. They just thought it was an abandoned van. Maybe, if they figured out the VIN, they even tried and failed to get in touch with Bob. And as long as it was a functioning van, why not put it to work? We obtained sales material for the 1979 Dodge van line. Dodge advertised its vans not just as personal rides, but as good value, durable, big capacity commercial vehicles, made to haul a lot of cargo inside without needing a much larger truck or trailer. From a city's perspective, not a bad vehicle to have around. Here's a Dodge TV ad posted to YouTube describing the company's offerings. From the folks who are number one in vans and wagons come the 1979s, like Dodge Maxi Wagon, the roomiest wagon you can buy. Like Sportsman Wagon, the wagon you can turn into a home away from home. Like Street Van, the van that's as fun as it is tough. Like some of the most maneuverable, versatile, best-selling vans in America. Is it any wonder when you ask about vans, you hear about Dodge? Dodge is into trucking, like America's into Jeep. 
But once the abandoned van in Aberdeen was somehow identified as belonging to Bob Anderson, I'm guessing that investigators or agents drove down to Aberdeen, South Dakota to learn more about where the van was found. I know that's what I would do. I'd stand right there in that railroad depot parking lot across the street from the Flame restaurant and I'd take a good look around. And I'd ask myself some questions. Why does the van end up here? What's here? The investigators knew for a fact that Bob's van was in Wishick, North Dakota on August 15, 1993. For a while, it was parked outside the Wishick police station when Kristen and Bob stopped in there to speak with Trooper Meidinger. It was a Sunday afternoon and I was working in the office at the police department and these two people came in, the one I knew. They were curious about whether child custody order was good that was and come to find out later that uh, these folks had disappeared. They left and your understanding was they were headed to the DD farm outside of Wishick. I believe that was correct, yeah. Then, the van was driven by Bob, or maybe Kristen, to Larry's house, Kristen's brother. Here's Larry. They stayed for maybe an hour or two, and then they said they had to go, so... Okay. And they went out, and they went out to the farm, and then when they got out there, they were going to pick up the kids, and ever since that, I never heard nothing no more. When you say the farm, you, which farm? Well, that was Clyde Didi's farm. Right. The one that she was married to. Then, assumingly, the Dodge van was at the Dee Dee farm that evening where Kristen calls Tiffany back in Bloomington. Something, I'm like, are you sure everything's okay? She's like, yeah, I can't talk to you about it right now. He's taking me to get the stuff, then we're going to pack it up and we're leaving. We're, we'll be leaving tonight. We'll either be home really late tonight, early morning, or we'll be home tomorrow. But we're leaving ASAP. So and then she hung up. Feel I didn't feel very good about that conversation. Four or five days later, the van is getting impounded here in Aberdeen, South Dakota, without plates, without a legible VIN number, and Bob and Kristen are never seen again. So what happened between Sunday and the day the van was reported? If it were me, if I was one of those investigators, I know I wouldn't just stand in that Aberdeen parking lot and then turn around and go home. I'm guessing they took a little walk around the area. What's here? Why here? I'd walk around the entire parking lot, and then maybe I'd cross the street and walk into the Flame restaurant. I'd poke my head in there, maybe ask some questions about the parking lot, about the patrons. I'd leave my card. Then I'd exit the Flame to the door facing Main Street, and I'd take a right and walk south on Main. So if you look to the right, that's going to be where there's going to be um, all your action. There's going to be little shops and little bars, and there's going to be hair salons and all kinds of things. I'd check out the old movie theater. If it was open, I'd talk to the manager. I'd poke around. I'd ask questions. Um, There's Capitol Theater, and whether there was a show on or a play going on, um, regardless, it was lit up. I'd visit every bar and club and talk to people like a huge high volume of strip clubs. Yeah, so the Silver Dollar was actually like 
probably two, I, I want to say two doors down or two or three businesses down from the flame. Then there was, there was a lot of strip clubs in Aberdeen at that time. And I'd visit any old hotel bars in the area, like the Ward Hotel. So the, so the Ward would be like, it, they didn't have a huge night crowd, I don't remember. Um, it would be a luncheon and then the bar would be a separate thing. And the bar was a little dark and kind of similar to the flame, but a little quieter. Hi, it's Jeremy again. Remember when I said we'd be zooming back and forth between 1993 and 2015? Now it's time to jump ahead. From Aberdeen, South Dakota in 1993, now ahead to September 30th, 2015, and north to Napoleon, North Dakota, county seat of Logan County. We're back in the White Maid Diner, where James is meeting with members of the Anderson family. They had just talked to law enforcement, hearing many important details about the investigation into their missing brother for the first time. Bob's brother-in-law, Mike, leans in, and not unlike an elegant dance step, he simply tells me. He tells me what have been so eager to get confirmed, or corrected, or clarified. Before I tell you what Mike said exactly, here's the context. Here's what we're talking about, what I wanted to get clarification on. Chase Anderson, Bob's son, had previously told me the following. He recalled being told by law enforcement that Clyde Deedy, Kristen's husband, had spent the night at a motel in Aberdeen, South Dakota, on or around the night when investigators believed Bob's van was left in that downtown parking lot, possibly Tuesday night. Chase Anderson remembered it as being the Super 8 motel, which is about two and a half miles from the parking lot. As you can imagine, when Chase told me this years ago, I found it to be an incredible coincidence. Kristen's husband, the man her friends say she was afraid of, with a no-contact order, Clyde Deedy, was allegedly in Aberdeen spending the night at a motel, around the time when Bob's van was believed to be abandoned, and all this after Trooper Meidinger and Kristen's brother say the last place Kristen and Bob were headed was the Deedy farm. Here's Chase Anderson. The story was is that Clyde had stayed there at the motel. Um, I want to say it was law enforcement that told me that because when they questioned him about it, that he said he was just down there for the bars and the strip clubs. This detail, Clyde Didi's alleged overnight stay in Aberdeen that week, this is what I'm so anxiously waiting to learn more about as Mike leans in to tell me what they learned. I'll tell you what Mike told me on that day, September 30th, 2015. First off, and most importantly, yes, Chase was correct. Law enforcement told the Andersons that Clyde Deedy had stayed a night in Aberdeen that week, 100 miles from Wishick. But one detail was wrong. He didn't stay at the Super 8 Hotel. No, not there. Not two miles from the parking lot. Investigators told the Andersons Clyde stayed at the Ward Hotel, two blocks from where Bob's van was parked. Jeremy asked Clyde about this when he spoke with him. Now, one thing that uh, we heard in our reporting was um, that you had visited, say, about a week after she disappeared or so, or or the next week after that weekend. Uh, You were 
at the Ward Hotel in Aberdeen. Does that sound familiar to you, or is that a place that you went? No, I don't remember that. Okay. Was Aberdeen a place that you ever went down to around that time that you recall? I'm familiar with the town, but it's not some a place that I hung out. Sure. Didn't have much of anything to do with. To this day, Bob's Dodge van is still being held as evidence by the Logan County Sheriff's Department. Still to come in this season of Dakota Spotlight. And that's when I stood outside and there was two big guys with him where Bob's jacket was also found. It was a jacket that uh, my mom uh, stitched up and repaired for him, and she recognized it right away. Nobody was interested in, in pursuing this. Said that there's not a day that would go by that she didn't think of Bob. She'd get up in the morning and think of Bob, and then before she'd go to bed, she'd think of Bob. And he was like right in my face. Dakota Spotlight is a production of Forum Communications. Remember, the investigation into what happened to Kristen and Bob remains an open case. Everyone is innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. If you have any information about this case, contact law enforcement at the Logan County, North Dakota Sheriff's Office. The number is 701-754-2495. If you like this show and want others to discover it, please consider leaving us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts. And why not join the Dakota Spotlight Facebook group? Just search Dakota Spotlight on Facebook. Thank you so much for listening. To support my work, get early access, listen ad-free, and much more, please consider subscribing to Spotlight Plus. Apple users can even subscribe right in the Apple Podcasts app. Learn more about Spotlight Plus at dakotaspotlight.com.